Welcome back to Blasphemous Nutrition. I'm your toe-stepping host, Amy, and today I'm wearing stilettos and poking some holes in some of the common misconceptions around a plant-based or meatless diet. If you've been wondering when I was going to get blasphemous, when I was going to go off the rails and use all my naughty words, this episode is a pretty good sample of just that. If you're not quite sure you want to go there with me, I do encourage you to grab some smelling salts, sit down, and give it a shot. While I am a little bit salty and get super heated because this is a pretty passionate topic for me, I do think overall at the end you might not be too offended with what I have to say. All disclaimers aside, I'm glad you're back and let's get started. Hey Rebels, welcome to Blasphemous Nutrition. Consider this podcast your pantry full of clarity, perspective, and the nuance needed to counter the superficial health advice so freely given on the internet. I'm Amy, the unapologetically candid host of Blasphemous Nutrition and a double-degreed nutritionist with 20 years experience. I'm here to share a more nuanced take on living and eating well to sustain and recover your health. If you've found most health advice to be so generic as to be meaningless, or so extreme that it's unrealistic, and you don't mind the occasional F-bomb, you've come to the right place. From dissecting the latest nutrition trends to breaking down published research and sharing my own clinical experiences, I'm on a mission to foster clarity amidst all the confusion and empower you to have the health you need to live a life you love. Now let's get started. I've been in the nutrition field for over 30 years, either as an enthusiast and a student or as a practitioner. And what is emerging in this plant-based versus keto landscape that we're in right now honestly just feels like a more extreme version of the competing Adkins versus vegetarianism ideology of the 1990s. It was in the 1990s when I began studying nutrition, and it was my own transition to a meatless diet, which I maintained for 13 years, that inspired my initial foray into the power of nutrition to change one's health. Like any good student, I read the works of Dean Ornish and John McDougall, and if you've been around long enough, you know who I'm talking about, and I adopted John Robbins' Diet for a New America as my own personal Bible in high school. I carried that thing around like it was my freaking binky, okay? I was convinced that if more people knew how critical nutrition was, to their ability to prevent heart disease and cancer, that they would make the same changes I did. It just made sense. But my family smiled and they patted my head but continued eating steak. So I decided I was going to get a degree so I could find people who wanted to make a difference for themselves. I literally owe my career to the alarmist environmentalists of my childhood who insisted that rainforests would disappear by 2010 unless we stopped eating meat, and to the blessed founders of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals for opening my tender adolescent eyelids to the absolute horrors of the meat, milk, and fur industries. And this turned me into a radical animal rights activist by the time I hit junior high school. Nowadays, our dietary wars are called plant-based versus keto, and the reality is that neither is the answer. As keto begins to fade from popularity, we see meatless diets coming out on top, powered by social media in a way that we did not see in the previous iterations in the 1990s as well as the 1970s. Now, the compelling arguments to avoid meat are influencing our school districts as well as government regulations much more quickly because of social media and because of the influence of social media on politics. And we're also seeing this movement of reducing meat consumption dovetailing alongside these more extreme weather patterns and temperature shifts in our environment. And many people want you to think that that would all just go away if we stopped, so, if we stopped raising so many cows for food. 
So I'm not going to continue throughout this podcast calling this a plant-based movement because honestly, the term plant-based is one of the stupidest marketing terms I've heard in as long as I can remember. Aside from the tiny slice of the population who is carnivore, we are all eating a plant-based diet already, okay? Over 60% of America's calories come from carbohydrates. Carbohydrates do not exist in meat, which means we're mostly eating plants. But those plants are coming as refined grains and hyper-processed food. So to make this state, like to just like, ugh, to call this plant-based and then turn that into a term that means healthy in our minds is, is just, it's, it makes me want to pull my hair out. <laughs> It's, it's just such a fucking stupid marketing term. Plant-based means it comes from plants and plants are healthy, right? Government recommendations are that we need to eat more plants. Now, what the government is recommending actually is that we eat more produce, which is different than a plant because Oreos come from plants, therefore they're plant-based, but that's not going to be the way that we get healthy, right? So by calling this a plant-based movement, it allows hyper-processed foods made from refined flours and pea protein isolate to be marketed as healthier and more environmentally friendly than your local rancher's chickens. And it creates this bullshit false equivalency between the healthiness of a yam and some kind of yam-flavored processed puff chip thing, right? I mean, so long as it doesn't have meat, okay, then you can feel virtuous. And when, you know, when we stop and think about this, we know better, but we already have too many goddamn decisions to make every day. And when it comes to procuring our food, we rely on these labels and marketing terms to like take some of that burden of decision off of us, right? We just, why can't eating just be easy for the love of God? And the fact that what they're ultimately doing is making things more complicated and ensuring, ensuring that large food conglomerates rebound after their sluggish profit margins during the paleo and keto years just gets me so freaking riled up. I cannot think straight sometimes. Okay. So let me set my biases aside here. And take a deep breath because <laughs> I'm going off the rails, folks. I am going off the freaking rails. <laughs> All right. First, I do want to acknowledge some of the potential benefits that can be had in adopting a meatless diet. There is little doubt that veganism is a more ethical choice than the standard American diet. I mean, nothing is more heinous and disgusting than how we raise animals for food in the United States. And we're absolutely paying the price for the commercial agricultural feedlot organization's way of doing business. And for those of you who do not know, commercial agricultural feedlot organization is a term that is often truncated to the acronym CAFO or CAFO. Now, I'm not going to go into all these details of the levels of torture and cruelty that are inflicted on sentient beings, but I will say that the majority of animals raised for food in the U.S. are pumped up full of antibiotics and cows get, you know, an extra dose of hormones thrown in there to grow bigger and do so faster. These animals are fed an unnatural diet of genetically modified corn, soy, and other grains that they would never be eating if they were wild animals. They would be consuming grasses on grassland. This is what they are intended to thrive upon. And while last I checked, feeding cow bits to cows had been banned due to mad cow disease, chicken feces and even shredded newspaper cut into the feed to bulk them up had not yet been outlawed. I don't know if that's true now, but that was true, you know, the last time I checked a number of years ago. These are not healthy animals. And their poor health and diet quality likely impacts us as well, although there are no quality studies to actually prove this. The impact of widespread antibiotic use in milk and meat has impacted our waterways, and it does compromise our own gut flora and is one of the ways that our own digestive health could be compromised. Now, I don't know about the status of the animal husbandry industry in Europe or if or how things are changing in the UK post-Brexit. So if you live in those areas and you know, please, please reach out to me and fill me in because 
I honestly haven't had time to go look into that. It's not a priority for me, but I am interested. We Americans tend to assume that our European cousins are smarter than we are about all of this and that they kowtow less to the allure of unrestrained capitalism, but it's always easier to assume the grass is greener, and I've traveled enough to know that is not always the case. Aside from ethical considerations, vegetarianism or veganism often becomes a gateway to a healthier diet, and this is especially true if someone is coming from a standard American diet. It was true for me. And the concerns of my grandparents and my great-grandparents' generation sent me to the library, you know, as a 12-year-old to justify my position to make this change. And it was there that I learned about the impact of food on health, and that is what ultimately brought me to where I am today. So when people explore veganism for health reasons, they often become introduced to the benefits of produce and eating more produce and expose themselves to a wider selection of produce than they had typically as omnivores. And so this will improve their overall diet quality, again, especially if they're coming from the standard American diet and have never really given much consideration to what they're eating. So while not many studies exist on long-term vegans, a vegan being someone who avoids all animal products, including eggs, dairy, and even honey, multiple long-term studies do suggest that vegetarians tend to be healthier and even outlive those on a standard American diet, which, to be frank, is a really freaking low bar to measure yourself against. And honestly, all diets that I've looked at that have compared themselves against the standard American diet come out on top. So again, I'm like, eh. <laughs> the most well-studied vegetarians that I'm aware of are Seventh-day Adventists who you know, live mostly in the United States. And when looking at these populations, it's critical to remember that there are other lifestyle factors that are related to their health choices. It isn't just that they're not eating meat, particularly with the Seventh-day Adventists and those who are interested in health in general, they also tend to not smoke, they tend to are, be more active, and in the case of Seventh-day Adventists, they as well as those in uh, Okinawa, Japan, they also have that benefit of a tight-knit community. And research has shown that community and a sense of belonging in your culture and having a sphere of influence within your community does contribute to health and longevity over time. So these confounding variables will really muddy up the results, right? Because they're also shown, you know, exercise is also shown to reduce all-cause mortality. Not smoking is a great way not to die, right? Other research shows that whatever diet that has a produce consumption of five servings a day or more demonstrates markedly improved health outcomes. And vegans and vegetarians who are concerned about their health often fall into that category of higher produce consumers. So they're actually improving their nutrient status when they adopt a vegetarian diet. So is it the fact that they cut out meat or is it the fact that they've increased their overall quality of dietary consumption, right? There are also studies that show that even when compared to Mediterranean diets or low glycemic diets, a vegan diet can improve insulin sensitivity as well as beta cell function in those who have type 2 diabetes. Now, that said, there's also research demonstrating that low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets are beneficial as well. So if you have diabetes or you have pre-diabetes and the latest health documentary on Netflix is telling you a vegan diet is the way to go and you're kind of like, eh, know that there is research that shows that going on a more produce-heavy, low-carbohydrate diet can also benefit your blood sugar. And what I've experienced in clinical practice is that, honestly, assessing diet quality alongside carbohydrate moderation is more beneficial than just going vegan or vegetarian. They get more clinically significant results by addressing their carbohydrate intake, as well as looking at nutrient density. 
There are also some really interesting case studies coming out of California that demonstrate medically supervised water fasting followed by a vegan diet can facilitate remission of autoimmunity and eliminate hypertension. And that longer term remission is possible with this sort of water fasting followed by vegan diet treatment plan. Now, these case studies are essentially one-offs from one clinic, but you know, they show promise that a vegan diet can sustain one's health after a supervised fasting protocol and reduce disease severity or even induce remission in some cases. But when we look at larger studies on veganism and breast cancer remission, those results don't pan out, you know, on larger study populations. And again, also, it's worth noting that breast cancer is not autoimmune disease, breast cancer is not hypertension. And this is where the nuance comes in. What works for one disease state may not work for another. And what I see, what I believed myself was unequivocally, hands down, no questions asked, getting rid of meat would improve your health no matter what your health issues were, right? And that's simply not what we see when we look into the research more closely, it is also worth noting in the case of autoimmune disease that the WALS protocol, which is similar to a paleo diet, but with a very specific nutrient focus, is also shown in clinical trials to be beneficial for multiple sclerosis. And multiple sclerosis is another autoimmune disease. So again, I don't think it's specifically avoiding animal products that's the golden ticket to health here. Now, when it comes to eliminating meat from the diet and going vegan, there are some cons and there are some stated pros that are highly debatable. Veganism in and of itself isn't like carte blanche healthier, right? Or even automatically environmentally friendly. I meet vegans who are not getting enough produce, but rather relying on grains and quick vegan foods like veggie burgers. And there are junk food vegans who eat red vines and tortilla chips and boxed macaroni and trees or, you know, the, the, the dairy-free equivalent of mac and cheese. A vegan who relies on processed food won't be getting much more fiber than someone on a standard American diet. And a vegan who doesn't eat any freaking vegetables is no healthier than someone on a standard American diet. In fact, I'd make the argument that these, you know, and I'm air quoting here, junk food vegans are even less healthy than junk food omnivores because they're missing several key minerals that are present in animal foods and largely absent in vegan food. So yes, it is possible to be healthy on a vegan diet. I won't go out and say that it is absolutely categorically impossible, but getting all of the nutrients that one needs is not done by default. It's, it's not that easy even on an omnivorous diet, okay? It takes more effort though on a vegan diet and might be more expensive than a diet that includes animal foods. There are several key nutrients that are potential sources of concern if someone is to transition to a completely animal-free diet. Low vitamin A, low iron intake, uh, B12 is largely absent, low intake of omega-3 fatty acids, as well as calcium, are often lacking in vegan diets. Observationally, what I've seen over the last two decades of clinical practice is a higher incidence of osteoporosis in my postmenopausal client load among those who have avoided meat for 10 years or more. So, and it's, it's worth noting that these are vegetarian women, not vegan. So dairy intake alone may not be protective. And in fact, <laughs> many vegans will point out the high osteoporosis rates and high dairy consuming cultures to prove their point as well. But in my Substack, which I have a link to that in the show notes, I do point to some dietary sources of these nutrients that are often low. In, in both animal and animal-free diets. So you can take a look at that if you're interested. Additionally, there's this super annoying pervasive story that a diet that contains meat, especially red meat, is essentially this willful request for a future of heart disease and cancer. And this was the hill that my 13-year-old self was prepared to die upon. 
But as I became a better educated and more discerning adult, and honestly, after being made the fool more times than I can count, I have revisited this notion and totally changed my opinions. Now, many of the studies showing that there is this link between meat and cancer or meat and heart disease are associative. And in the field of science, we, you know, there's sort of this categorically ranked quality of research and observational studies are not considered of the highest quality because there are so many of those confounding variables like I talked about with the Seventh-day Adventists. And so a lot of these studies that show this link between meat consumption and heart disease or meat consumption and cancer are these associative observational studies. Like studies done on Seventh-day Adventists, we cannot assume that it's the lack of meat when there are so many other factors that can be at play here. So when we look at this correlation between meat consumption, processed meat consumption, and heart disease and cancer, there are a lot of different moving parts. At a population level, when there is an increase in GDP, right, in, in the amount of money that a, a country is making and industrialization is happening in that country, we see a direct correlation with the increase in chronic disease. We also observe that people tend to spend more money on meat when they have more money to spend. However, they also spend more money on processed foods. Industrialized nations also tend to have increases in air pollution, alcohol consumption, and their activity levels tend to go down. So we can't say that this observation between meat consumption and heart disease or meat consumption and cancer is causal any more than we can say that cell phone towers cause diabetes, even though both have increased significantly over the last 30 years. So there's a lot of factors at play, right? And these are called confounding variables in the scientific literature. One thing that's not well explored is the impact that high produce can have in mitigating some of these associations. The question that I've started to ask is that, is it really meat that causes cancer or is it that people aren't eating enough damn vegetables, okay? Is the displacement of produce the real problem? We also see this association with a high produce diet reducing all-cause mortality, okay? So there are observational studies, again, confounding variables, right? We need to take that into consideration. But at a population level, we see this association that the more fruits and vegetables humans consume, the less their risk of dying from anything. The nuance within that hasn't been very well explored beyond which fruits and vegetables seem to be the most protective. So we also see this association with a high produce diet reducing death from all causes. But the nuance of, you know, is it the produce? Is it the meat? What's going on here? That hasn't been well explored. I've only found one or two studies that suggest a high produce diet will void out the meat associated risk of disease. But again, these aren't really high levels of precise science. So I'm, I'm not going to make that the hill I die on in my 40s. <laughs> Additionally, you know, most of these meat and cancer association studies are done in Western industrialized countries. So studies in Asia don't show the same cancer risk from higher meat consumption that we observe in Western industrialized nations. So, I mean, could that be due to higher produce consumption among Asian populations? The sort of, it's out of my power answer is, oh, those Asian genetics are amazing, but I, nah, I don't know about that. So this isn't as simple as comparing meat to cigarettes, right? Now, on that note, on that note, this association of meat being equivalent to smoking, which was popularized in the documentary, What the Health?, comes from the World Health Organization, not saying that they are equivalent, but by putting processed meat in the category of a group one carcinogen. Smoking is also a group one carcinogen. Arsenic exposure is a group one carcinogen. 
Okay, so they group their carcinogens according to the strength of evidence showing an association between exposure and cancer. And a group one carcinogen doesn't refer to the likelihood that arsenic or smoking or meat causes cancer, but to the strength of evidence showing there is a signal here. There's something going on here, right? And there is a lot of evidence to support that people who eat significant amounts of processed meats have a higher risk of cancer. However, people who eat more processed meat tend to also eat more processed foods across the board, right? It's not like those guys eating hot dogs and Slim Jims are eating a whole bunch of greens, (laughs) So this association between processed meat and cancer may actually be more indicative of a highly processed diet increasing the risk of cancer than by meat itself being the problem. Now, the strength of the evidence does exist. There is strong evidence showing that processed meat consumption is associated with cancer, but the magnitude of that association is much weaker than something like, say, smoking. So, for instance, the World Health Organization says that you increase your risk of getting colon cancer by 18% if you eat two ounces of processed meat every day. So this is an increased relative risk of getting colon cancer. However, your absolute overall risk of being diagnosed with colon cancer in your lifetime is maybe around 8.2%. I believe that is actually specific to the Australian population, but don't hold me to that. So if your absolute risk of being diagnosed in your lifetime, the chances that you will be diagnosed with colon cancer in your lifetime is 8.2%, and you eat two ounces of processed meat a day, then your relative risk, the, the, the chances that you you might get diagnosed increase by about 18%. So that means your absolute risk would go up to 9.6% from 8.2%, if my math's right. So this is where we get into relative risk versus absolute risk, and that's a complicated conversation for another time. But what I'm trying to say here is that we read a statistic that says, if you eat processed meat, you have an 18% increased risk of colon cancer. That's relative risk, not absolute risk. Your absolute risk is actually still less than 10%. It's 9.6%, which is an increase from that 8.2, right? But it's not, it's not an 18% absolute risk It's like, yeah, your odds increase by about, you know, 18%. So by contrast, going back to this strength of association versus magnitude of association, men who smoke cigarettes have about a 20 time greater risk of developing lung cancer as men who do not smoke. So if we were going to express this as a percentage, the increase in risk of getting lung cancer due to smoking is 1,900% when compared to a non-smoker. Two out of three long-term smokers end up dying a premature death due to a smoking-related disease. So there's strong evidence that processed meat is associated with cancer and that smoking is associated with cancer. However, the magnitude of that association is wildly different. But because of the strength of evidence, these two things get lumped into the same category. And then some dumbass on Netflix who starts off with his premise and then finds all the evidence to prove that he's correct and films it, decides to film children smoking for breakfast because that's the equivalent of bacon, when that is absolutely not what the World Health Organization is saying. And this is how this is how statistics and and science can be twisted and manipulated to serve a purpose that is not grounded in fact and we all can't be freaking statisticians who understand this stuff 
and it gets really damn complicated and frustrating. And I will tell you, it's not easy. It's not like, it's not easy. You got to walk outside your front door wearing your skepticism hat and constantly question everything that's being told. And I totally get how frustrating it is for you because it's still frustrating for me. All right. Tangent aside, taking another deep breath, pulling my shit together and getting back on track. Bottom line, to equate bacon with cigarettes is absurd and misinformed at the very least. Additionally, there's been concern that high protein diets and high meat diets cause kidney disease, that if you eat too much protein, you'll get kidney disease. Now, if someone has latter stage kidney disease, monitoring their protein is super freaking important because at that point, the kidneys are so diseased, they struggle to process protein. And so then it becomes relevant to take a look at one's protein intake. However, there is no evidence that consuming a higher protein diet will cause kidney disease. The British Medical Journal did a systematic review and meta-analysis of protein intake and disease and found that, oddly enough, a high protein intake reduced all-cause mortality and that there is no significant association with animal protein consumption and increased disease that will be included in the show notes. So a systematic review and meta-analysis is when researchers take a look at the bulk of research on a subject that has been published already, and then they analyze that, and that can allow us to discern whether or not there is a stronger signal to support or refute a question in science. Because when you take a look at the literature in bulk, you've essentially a larger pool, right? A larger pool of evidence. And so systematic reviews and meta-analyses are very helpful, particularly when we're looking at population studies and, and things, they can be helpful in discerning whether or not, for instance, whether or not it's Asian genetics that prevent them from getting cancer despite, um, you know, despite those who consume higher meat, or if it's something else. So when the British Medical Journal did this systematic review and meta-analysis, they would have included studies that perhaps were partially of Asian populations, but also Western populations and maybe African populations, right? Middle Eastern populations. So we get this broader range of humanity than we would get in one study or one observational study of a certain demographic. So the takeaway here is that while there is a signal associating meat, especially processed meat, with disease, the association that exists is really weak overall, and often it doesn't take into account other complex variables that have a much stronger association or known cause of disease, such as smoking. It's not likely that red meat or even processed meat is a significant risk for disease when it's part of an overall healthy lifestyle that includes lots of produce, eat your vegetables, my friends, as well as adequate activity. But to know for sure, honestly, we need to have long-term controlled trials, and these are supremely difficult to execute, outrageously expensive, and unrealistic to expect at this time. Additionally, a controlled trial doesn't actually take into account the random craziness of a human living in the free world that we see in these observational studies. But if there was a direct cause, if we were to ascertain cause, a controlled trial would be the way to do it. Vegans who want to demonize me, and especially red me, as destroying our health likely don't fully understand the nuance behind the situation, or they are ignoring the multitude of variables that do impact our health and quality of life. But when one starts to have a more nuanced conversation, many of these arguments in favor of a vegan diet really fail to carry much weight. Now, additionally, being a vegan does not automatically equate to an environmentally friendly diet either. Grapes from Brazil in January are not a more sustainable choice or an environmentally friendly choice 
than an omnivore purchasing local meat from a nearby ranch or the farmer's market, okay? But your local Berkeley Whole Foods vegan is not going to be thinking about that. And all the hipsters chowing on avocado toast are unknowingly contributing to deforestation because there's this rush to plant more avocado trees. To make matters worse, the Mexican drug cartel has chosen the avocado as its next investment, or maybe it's been investing in avocados for a long time. I honestly don't know. But regardless, the drug cartels are broadening their investment portfolio, and the avocado is one of their investments. This has led to an increase in illegal deforestation and God knows how many human rights abuses as they expand their empire into new key territories and interests. So, and this pains me because I freaking love avocados, but they've become so popular that illegal deforestation is happening to plant more fruit trees. Not an environmentally friendly choice. Additionally, prices for avocados and quinoa have become so high in some places that people in Peru and Mexico can't afford them. And these are their traditional ancestral staple foods. And so these are important considerations to explore when you're looking at veganism as an environmentalist solution. Simply becoming vegan isn't a carte blanche pass to feeling good about reducing your carbon footprint. We can all be better about reducing our carbon footprint by consuming foods that are you know, locally grown, in season, as well as making other low-carbon emission lifestyle choices, including reducing our consumerism overall. Cows get the brunt of hatred for carbon emissions, but the Environmental Protection Agency's own data just fucking crushes that idea if anybody would bother to take a look at it. I pulled up stats for 2021, which is the most recent data available for total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by economic sector. And yes, the United States, alongside China, and I think the bulk of the European Union, are some of the greatest greenhouse gas emitters in the world. So America, yep, we are guilty of producing a lot of greenhouse gases. But when you look at what the Environmental Protection Agency says about the biggest contributors of those gases, agriculture is 10%. It's transportation and industry together that make up more than half of our greenhouse gas emissions. We create nearly three times the amount of greenhouse gases shipping things coast to coast than we do from the entire agricultural sector. 28% of total gas emissions come from transportation and only 10% come from agriculture. So it's crucial to note also that this 10% of gas emissions released by the U.S. agricultural industry is not just cows. It's all of agriculture. It's grain. It's vegetables. It's chicken. It's pork. It's everything that we consume and everything that we grow to feed our livestock. It's estimated if we eliminated all animal sources of greenhouse gases, right, if the U.S. decided as a nation, and this is amusing to even consider, but if as a country we went, all of us, went completely vegan, we would reduce our national carbon emissions by 2.6%. Just going to pause and let that land. 2.6% if America went vegan. Additionally, the study that estimated this, they looked at their conclusion and stated that to do so would be, and here I am quoting, non-viable in the long or short term to support the nutritional needs of the U.S. population without nutrient supplementation. So when scientists look at this and they look at how much of our greenhouse gases are produced by animal products and what would happen if we got rid of it, it's like super underwhelming, 2.6%. Not only that, but to do so would put the country at risk of nutrient deficiency above and beyond where we already are. So... And, you know, 13-year-old vegan Amy is saying, oh, well, they can just take supplements. But no, no, we can't simply just make nutritional supplements to compensate and expect it to be the equivalent of an omnivorous diet. And that is also a topic for another episode. Okay, but let's just go there and say 
we would give it a try, right? In this hypothetical universe where America decides to go vegan as a nation and cut out all animal-based sources of greenhouse gas emissions, is it realistic to get an entire population to take supplements for a measly 2.6% reduction in greenhouse gases? I mean, I think the, like, the answer is no, right? Like, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that we can't make everybody in the United States cohesively work together to do a damn thing. So it's not realistic to compensate for those nutrient deficiencies. Additionally, if this came from on high and we decided to do this, and this is where going back to the start of the podcast, when I talked about social media making this impact on school boards and, and government recommendations to reduce meat consumptions, we already have vulnerable populations in this country who are not getting enough nutrients. And when you have a child in the public school system who is food insecure and you take away a key source of iron, which is crucial for like being able to freaking learn and have oxygen getting to your brain and zinc and other vitamins and minerals that are present in greater abundance, greater assimilation from animal products. And you take that away from that vulnerable population, that child from shelters, which are going to be relying on government subsidized foods, right? This makes our food insecure population even more at risk of nutrient deficiencies. And I am so not okay with that. Um, and I'm getting riled up and losing my focus <laughs> because damn it, this topic just pushes so many of my buttons. All right. So let's step out of that world because I think I can't handle it today. I'm going to pretend that you, listener, agree that it's probably not worth the effort to try and get nutrient supplements into the entire population to compensate for the lack of nutrients they would be getting and reduce our global greenhouse contribution by 2.6%. All right, there we go. So here's the deal. If we really want to make a dent in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we can start to reevaluate our addiction to cheap shit from China delivered to us by Amazon. Because transportation and fossil fuels are a significant contributor, far more than agriculture, to our greenhouse gas emissions in this country. We can start to put the same amount of attention that has been put on cows and cow burps and cow farts onto larger polluters like power plants and refineries and natural gas systems and pressure them and pressure our government to incentivize these companies to become more efficient or otherwise reduce their carbon footprint. Now, I don't have much faith in industry or governments to get things done quickly, so I personally have taken steps to reduce my carbon footprint by, you know, refocusing on more seasonal foods. This also saves me some money and purchase from smaller companies when I can afford to and overall reassess my own reliance upon Amazon. And honestly, the whole like getting stuff delivered to my door economy that we've created for ourselves. So all of this is super complicated. Okay. And it's honestly probably more complicated than we can handle. We are humans and we love to think that we have more control over our lives and the world we live in than I think we actually do. It's almost like we still think of ourselves as the center of the universe, right? But we have this epic, long-standing history of being terribly short-sighted and stubbornly pushing forward with an idea until we fall off the freaking cliff with it. Human beings are not inherently good at big picture thinking or nuanced details. And this isn't a judgment. It just, it is what it is. It's, it's no different than saying, you know, human beings are not good at living off the land in the middle of 
northern Alaska in January. It's just like, we're just not good at it. I imagine that this this overall shortcoming of ours, you know, for, for being a little bit short-sighted, not seeing nuanced details, lack of big picture thinking, it had an evolutionary advantage at some point in time. However, I think right now we just need to be more mindful of these huge gaps that we have in our knowledge base and our thinking, right? And, and to be aware that this idea that, well, if we just stopped eating meat, things would be better. It sounds great. It sounds easy. It sounds powerful. Some people make compelling arguments, but there are some huge gaps and a lot of steps that we need to be considering before we start taking meat out of public schools and releasing Netflix documentaries that lean into the fear and the drama to persuade us to make changes that might not actually be beneficial in the long run. So the overarching takeaway today from my numerous outrageous ranting is that avoiding meat is not as beneficial for your health or the environment as you may have been led to believe. Now, if your ethical stance or your religion prohibits consumption, like that's one thing, okay? But if you're doing this for the planet or you're doing this for your own health, you're not likely doing yourself any favors that would not be accomplished through a more locally focused, high quality omnivorous diet and emphasizing purchases from smaller local companies. Based upon the existing observations that we see in research, the best course of action is to focus more on unprocessed meats, adding plenty of vegetables and fruits and layering in other healthy lifestyle factors like community, physical activity, staying away from tobacco and excessive alcohol, right? And get routine lab work to assess your own personal risk of disease over time. So I had mentioned in the start of this episode that um, I was a vegetarian for 13 years and I became a vegetarian when I was about 13 years old. And, you know, the pitfall of, of making any dietary change is when we step into it, making the blanket assumption that it's going to be healthier because so-and-so told us and, and not applying our own critical thinking to the situation. Like we are all being very cleverly marketed to, and our own biases can often get in the way of what our body actually needs. So for instance, if you love bacon and cheese and somebody's telling you that going keto is the healthiest thing you can do for yourself, you're going to be like, oh, hell yeah, it is, <laughs> right? Or if you were like 13-year-old Amy and you loved animals and you learned all of this stuff about animal husbandry in the United States and then also heard that avoiding animal products would make you healthier, then of course, like veganism would be the best answer, right? It's the best answer for the animals. It's the best answer for me. And that was exactly my experience and how I journeyed into becoming a vegetarian. I started at 13 years old and I always held aspirations for veganism. But after a couple of months, the cravings for eggs and cheese would inevitably pull me back into just being a vegetarian. However, for years, I never considered eating meat, and I honestly believed that I wouldn't need to for the entirety of my life. A year or so after I finished my first nutrition degree and I started doing health coaching, I found myself realizing that meat started smelling good. And that was weird, but it was easy to dismiss, and I did just that. But then I noticed it started looking good, and that was odd and troubling. Like Alex Jameson, who was the wife of Morgan Spurlock and Super Size Me and a vegan at the time that that documentary was produced, so much of my identity and my values were wrapped in my dietary choices. And at the time, I could not face what my body was requesting. So I remained a vegetarian. I do remember in undergrad having these thoughts that the severity of my seasonal affective disorder growing up in Alaska could have been alleviated if I had fish oil or vitamin D. But when I moved to Washington State, it totally took care of seasonal affective disorder for me. So it was very easy to dismiss that. 
And then when I learned that cholesterol was the foundation for making our hormones, I again wondered if my total cholesterol of 97 at age 18 was actually a sign of dysfunction. Despite, and I remember so clearly the nurse being amazed and congratulating me on my cholesterol levels being below 100. But despite these historic red flags, I wasn't willing to consider meat for a full additional year. And it was in 2006 that I had this realization that I am an animal, right? I, Amy, I live in this animal body. And this animal body was very clearly asking for meat. And I was denying it that. My denial of this request was in and of itself a form of animal cruelty. It was a form of neglect, And I would never, ever tell anybody who worked with me to ignore the cravings that I was having, but I asked that of myself and I demanded that from my body. When I realized this and realized this huge lack of integrity that I had around it, it was, it was a pretty strong smack in the face. And I knew, I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I have to at least try this. So, (laughs) and so, uh, I decided to go to Whole Foods and go up to their prepared deli counter or their prepared foods counter. And uh, I asked for for some sliced beef as a sample, okay? And this was in 2006. I had not eaten any meat since 1992. And I was, oh my God, I was hoping, I was like, please let me taste it and have it taste like blood. And hopefully it makes me vomit. And then... I don't have to, like, we can just stop here, but it did none of those things. I took that sample, I tried it, and it actually tasted okay. So I decided to get a three-ounce portion of beef, because that's actually what my body started craving first was beef. And I took it home and made a taco with it in the hopes that, well, maybe if I eat three ounces of it, it'll make me puke. And throughout all of this, I kept telling myself, you know, you can go back to vegetarianism at any point in time. We're just doing an experiment, okay? Because psychologically, it was such a huge hurdle for me to even consider doing this. But it turns out my body really needed that animal protein. And the borderline anemia that I had been dancing with for over a year disappeared. My running times improved. I had more stable, consistent energy that I never realized I was missing because, again, I became a vegetarian at 13 years old, and it wasn't until my mid-20s that I revisited that and started eating meat again. So a lot had changed, and it's possible, particularly because I'd been coming from a standard American diet, that initially this dietary change was healthier for me, but over time it failed to be so. And I obtained my first degree in nutrition while a vegetarian. So, you know, I know, air quote, how to do it right. But adding that meat in really made a significant difference. And after about a year and a half, I realized that the chronic digestive issues that I'd been having for about a decade were actually due to an intolerance of soy, dairy, and wheat, which were my staples as a vegetarian. So I don't even know how I could have continued having a healthy vegetarian diet with without those foods in it. So, I mean, to this day, I'm so, so grateful that I made that decision to start bringing meat in before I knew I had those food intolerances because it would have been psychologically devastating to discover the sensitivities before I was emotionally ready to even try meat again. But, you know, now I can look back and I can see that my body wasn't thriving. It's really easy to overlook because all of the telltale signs that I was told to look for, that I was educated to assess for nutrient deficiencies among vegetarians, was largely absent. The only signal I had was that kind of borderline anemia that would come and go. My cycle was regular. I never got sick. I was running marathons without any injuries. You know, I ate really healthfully, but even a degree in nutrition didn't make vegetarianism suitable enough for me in the long run. And, you know, the 90s was the era where cholesterol levels couldn't be low enough. So traditional medicine applauded me for levels that some people now would consider alarming. 
At the end of the day, when we look across humans around the world and we look at the history of humanity and what allowed us to evolve and thrive to this point in time, we see that the longest living, healthiest cultures are not vegan. Now, they're not paleo and they're not carnivore, but they also are not exclusively animal free. So this tells me that humans as a species likely thrive on a produce-heavy omnivorous diet. And, you know, maybe you really want to try vegan and maybe you do well on it and that's okay. Or maybe you do well for five years, but then you have kids or take up soccer or you go through menopause and your body suddenly has different needs. It's really important to listen to your body and what it's asking for because it, it won't let you down. So much of health is really about trying to understand the signals that the body is giving and then meeting those needs. And, you know, we don't come with a user manual. So that process of listening and learning and responding does take time. If you decide to embark on a dietary change like veganism or keto or paleo, you want to get your labs done before you begin and then have them checked a couple times a year for the first year or two, see how you respond. Some people feel great, but then their lab work indicates, yeah, you're not really doing so well. Now you're pre-diabetic or, you know, you're inching towards type 2 diabetes, your cholesterol is really high, your vitamin D levels are tanked, your iron stores are going low, Right. Markers like cholesterol and vitamin D, iron, and fatty acids are often silent but very significant indicators of our overall health and the overall quality of the foods that we're consuming. So if everything looks great after the first 18, 24 months, then just wisely monitor your health at annual checkups, but keep going so long as it feels good for you and your labs remain optimal. And I have to say, don't ask your doctor to just do all the labs because that doesn't mean what you think it does. When you say do all the labs, that generally just means like a complete blood chemistry and a complete metabolic panel, and that's it. It doesn't include iron. It doesn't include vitamin D. It doesn't include omega-3 fatty acid status, right? So you want to specifically ask for labs on those as well as the standard lab workup, because that standard lab workup will reveal any changes in cholesterol or blood sugar or uh, a risk of megaloblastic anemia. So the perfect diet, honestly, is just the one that works best for you. And your gut flora, your genetics, and your lifestyle are very unique to you. So there's no one way of eating that's going to blanketly apply for all the masses. If you see a compelling documentary, please do some critical thinking and assess whether it was biased. Does it sound like the person doing the documentary started with their premise and then proved that they were right? Or is it balanced and exploring both sides of a highly debatable issue? Experiment with your food and see how you feel. And if that transition into a different dietary pattern feels too extreme, then consider a more middle of the road approach. Instead of going vegan, become a pescatarian, right? Instead of going keto, try paleo or a more moderate carbohydrate diet and see if that works better for you. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Blasphemous Nutrition. I have all the research citations for this episode on my Substack, which is at Blasphemous substack.com. So be sure to check that out if you want to do some digging for yourself and you want to check my sources. Additionally, you can leave me a review and let me know what you think of this podcast as that helps others determine if this is going to be the right podcast for them. Thanks so much. If you have found some nuggets of wisdom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and share Blasphemous Nutrition with those you care about. As you navigate the labyrinth of health advice out there, remember, health is a journey, not a dietary dictatorship. Stay skeptical, stay daring, and challenge the norms that no longer serve you. If you've got burning questions or want to share your own flavor of rebellion, slide into my DMs. Your stories fuel me, and I love hearing them. Thanks again for tuning in to Blasphemous Nutrition. Until next time, this is Amy signing off reminding you that truth is nuanced 
and any dish can be made better with a little bit of sass. Any and all information shared here is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be misconstrued as offering medical advice. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a provider-client relationship. Note, I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, and it is imperative that you utilize your brain and your medical team to make the best decisions for your own health. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk. No information nor resources provided are intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Be a smart human and do not disregard or postpone obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you may have. Seek the assistance of your healthcare team for any such conditions and always do so before making any changes to your medical, nutrition, or health plan.